0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week's episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer is helping make farming more efficient to preserve more wildlife habitats. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 8th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, contributing correspondent, Lizzie Wade, joins me to talk about a Caribbean archeology span project that focuses on the lives of enslaved people. And I talk with Jonathan Scholes about the role of the medieval Catholic church in so-called weird psychology. That's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic psychology. This summer, back in July, I took a work trip to St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was there for a video project and contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade was there to write a feature story on the same topic. And we visited a former sugar and rum plantation. It's now run by the Nature Conservancy, and it's called Estate Little Princess. And there were a lot of archaeologists digging there, sifting, sorting, and perhaps most importantly, training the next generation of archaeologists. Lizzie's here to talk about this archaeology work. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. What exactly were the archaeologists that we met there working on at this site?
1: There are lots of things you can study when you look at a plantation, like how the institution of slavery worked, how these European immigrants lived. But, you know, what these archaeologists and a lot of archaeologists in the Caribbean and the southeastern United States are doing is really trying to get a very, very intimate look at the daily lives of enslaved Africans whose experiences are really sparsely recorded in other ways. The daily lives that are recorded from them tend to be sort of unique because there are people who escaped, people who could read or write for some life experience led them to be able to do that. And most enslaved Africans didn't have either of those experiences. So, you know, getting at what it was like to be in that circumstance on this plantation, you can really only get to it through archaeology.
0: So one of the things I noticed was how many people were working together at the same time. I think there were three different research projects underway, multiple graduate students, and then Many undergraduates, and even there were a few days when we were there where there were middle schoolers at work at this site. is that a normal mix for a field
1: season and an archaeology dig? No, this was very unique. I would say normally, you'd have several different researchers working on different thrusts of their own projects on the same site, and then they need to bring graduate students and then in a lot of places that I usually go to, which is in Latin America, they will hire people from the local communities and pay them to do a lot of the excavation work, like the digging and the sifting. But here, that work was really all done by undergraduates from historically Black colleges and universities, and also 19 middle and high school students who you mentioned, which I've never seen before (laughs) on any archaeological site in very. (laughs) It was a lot of young students. Yeah. They had
0: a lot of energy, but they helped, right? They were actually doing the work. No, they
1: were really, they did real work. It was very impressive.
0: Why was there such a large group and, and so many different, so many different backgrounds there?
1: Yeah. So the archaeologists who are leading this project, who are named Justin Donovan and Ayana Fluellen, are the co-founders of the Society of Black Archaeologists. And in the U.S., which St. Croix is part of, fewer than 1% of archaeologists identify as Black. That's really something that these two people and the, the other researchers who are collaborating with them are trying to change, and hence their involvement of the HBCU students and the local middle and high school students who were all from St. Croix to try to give them some archaeological experience and to maybe open doors in that field in the future. Can you outline when this plantation was in operation? So Denmark was the main colonial power in St. Croix, which I think a lot of people Probably don't know that Denmark was like colonizing islands in the Caribbean, but it was controlled by Denmark for, for many centuries. This particular plantation was founded in 1749 and enslaved Africans lived there until 1848, which was when slavery was was abolished on, on St. Croix and the other Danish territories. But people continued to live on the plantation for many, many, many decades afterwards up until the 1960s or 70s which was really a surprise to me. But these islands aren't that big and there's not that many other places you can go.
0: Well, let's get into what the students were doing there, what the researchers were doing. This was a plantation in the Caribbean and the focus of this group of researchers is part of this larger effort to understand the lives of enslaved people in this region, in the Caribbean. So how is this playing out at Estate Little Princess? What kinds of research questions are being asked there?
1: Most of the excavations that we saw This summer, we're focused around the village where the enslaved Africans lived. Historical records suggest that there were around 40 houses there at some point, all pretty small, housing two families at a time. But they found the ruins of only five of those houses, and they were excavating in one of them very intensively this summer. So they were looking at the inside of the house. You know, it's an earthen floor and what you'd find as you go back through time, as you dig down into it. So, you know, you find ceramics and buttons from clothes, pieces of glass from bottles that could be used for holding medicine or holding water, lots of different kinds of ceramics from really quite expensive porcelain to locally made coarser pottery called afro ware, And then there are also excavating outside the house because a lot of activities probably took place outside the house, like cooking. There wasn't like room for a kitchen inside. And so they're sort of trying to get a sense of what people were doing inside of their living space and around it as well. And it sort of in between the houses and a sense of how far this village would have extended. And that's really to get a look at what people were eating, what people were wearing. And you can actually see a lot of personal decisions in the objects that people had in their homes.
0: One of the things that came up a lot was this idea of agency, of like trying to understand how much agency the enslaved Africans had on the plantation. So how do they go about their daily lives? Can you talk a little bit about how the archaeology that they're doing plays into this?
1: A little button might not seem like very much information to go on, but it really can be a world of information that you really can't get any other way about, about these people. When I first started reporting this story, I think like a lot of people, I kind of assumed that enslaved Africans lived on rations from the planters. They'd get a certain amount of food to eat every day, clothes to wear and whatever. But it turns out that there's actually quite a thriving market system in St. Croix where enslaved Africans could go and buy and sell things themselves. And they were largely responsible for furnishing their own homes in addition to building them, building the planters' homes making sure everyone on the estate had food to eat in the provisions grounds that they cultivated and they decided how to manage.
0: In addition to this archaeological work where they're looking for artifacts for material culture from people who lived in these in this village, there's also a focus from some of the researchers on the ecology and the change in the landscape that occurred under the slavery regime in St. Croix. Can you talk a little bit about how that's working?
1: Yeah. So in the Caribbean, when Europeans and Africans first arrive, lots of the islands have extensive forests on them. Things really started to change when plantations started growing sugar, which is an incredibly labor intensive crop it requires huge amount of water huge amount of land and the european planters were obviously like extremely eager to make as much money on this as possible because markets were for the first time in history truly globalizing and you could sell sugar everywhere and everybody was desperate to have it they had the enslaved africans clear just huge swaths of the islands and replace the forest with sugarcane. A lot of times they had to redirect rivers and completely change how the islands were irrigated. There's not always great building material on these islands. Some of them are more volcanic and rocky, and some of them aren't. St. Croix is Mm -hmm. not particularly. So, you know, you need building materials for all the people, for all the houses. A lot of that came from coral reefs. Enslaved Africans would dive down and harvest coral, and you can see them still in the walls of these houses. Slavery really led to like tremendous changes in the environment. I would say mostly for the worse. I think each Caribbean island, you can see on a small scale, like how slavery just reshaped absolutely everything. How rivers run, what plants grow there, what kinds of people live on the island. Like it was totally transformative.
0: I was actually talking to one of the researchers about how hard it would be to harvest coral for building blocks if you didn't have scuba equipment or any kind of equipment you're just going underwater and doing this really hard labor and then pulling it all back to shore he's uh justin is actually scuba certified all the researchers are engaged in the scuba aspect because they're trying to get a marine component to kind of complement the terrestrial component looking for shipwrecks
1: yeah in the caribbean there's ships going between the islands there's ship coming from europe there's ships coming from africa carrying enslaved africans you know it's really a huge economic hub. So you can't really stop at the borders of the islands. There's lots of stuff happening in between the islands as well. And one of the big things is the ships that were carrying enslaved Africans, which are not really just what we think of as quote unquote slave ships. Any ship was sort of Mm -hmm. engaged in this, in the trade in some way or another, whether that was transporting products that enslaved Africans made or or carrying enslaved Africans themselves. And so there are a couple of shipwrecks that are documented off the coast of St. Croix that the researchers are interested in further investigating to see whether they could have been ships carrying enslaved Africans and, you know, seeing what those ships were like and how the the connections between the islands were like in the water and not just on land. Can you put this
0: in context of the research that's being done in the larger setting of the history of slavery and um, the Caribbean as kind of this nexus point?
1: The Caribbean was really the center of this. Enslaved Africans would be brought to the Caribbean first. A lot of times, many people would stay there and live there and die there. Some people would move from there to the U.S., but you know, it was sort of how we think of slavery in the U.S., how many people came, how many people were enslaved in the South, all over, really. Uh, it was just like an order of magnitude less than in the Caribbean, where you have these huge industrial sugar plantations that require tremendous amount of labor of, and really hard labor, so people are dying a lot. So the Caribbean is has become a really interesting place to study slavery across time and across space because you know you have different colonial powers controlling different islands at different times and often fighting over territories so you'll see one island will be French and then it'll be British and then go back. That can really change the kind of material culture and and how even the institution of slavery is practiced. Each island is like a laboratory for all of these forces of slavery and capitalism and globalization and industrial agriculture. And you can sort of see how those forces play out in miniature, like in different places. And so there's lots of different projects around the Caribbean looking at many islands, many colonial regimes, many sort of different timelines and legal frameworks for slavery. But I think what they all tend to have in common these days is that they're really, really focused on trying to get at the individual lives of enslaved Africans who lived there.
0: What about their relationship with the community? I noticed that that was definitely a focus of a lot of the researchers as they plan on returning year after year to the site. Why do you think that that's a focus of their work?
1: The danger in a lot of archaeology is that people are Most archaeologists tend to be investigating communities that aren't their own. That's not the case for all archaeologists, but, you know, but numbers and statistically, like probably you'll be researching a place that you don't personally come from and in a time that you're not personally connected to. And I think that can lead to some some ethical dilemmas. Are you sharing the knowledge that you're gaining with the people who are connected to this place? Are you asking the questions that the people who are from there are actually interested in knowing, or are you asking questions that an outsider is interested in and the community finds to be really obvious and boring? As with many archaeologists these days, Justin and Ayana and their collaborators are really sensitive to these questions and want to make sure that they're doing it right and changing the paradigm and changing sort of how how archaeology is done and the expectation for how engaged archaeologists will be with the local community.
0: All right, thank you so much, Lizzie. Thank you, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent at Science. She's based in Mexico City. You can find a link to her article and a related video at sciencemag.org/podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Jonathan Scholes about the role of the medieval Roman Catholic Church in the psychology of people today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about STEAM fun. This holiday season, a KiwiCo subscription makes the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist in your life. KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create these hands-on projects and toys that are designed to expose kids to concepts in STEM, art, and design. Their mission? to help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and have a blast while doing it. There are seven lines to choose from, catering for all different age groups and topics, the panda crate for babies or the Eureka crate for kids 14 plus. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus detailed kid-friendly instructions. Cubico projects are available via flexible monthly subscriptions or for individual purchase. They have gifts for kids of all ages, so there's something for everyone on your list. KiwiCo is offering you the chance to get your first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects, visit kiwico.com slash science mag. That's kiwico.com slash science mag. So-called weird sampling in psychology has been recognized for over a decade. This is this idea that participants in psychology studies are weird, W-E-I-R-D. They're from Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. In fact, a lot of psych study subjects are usually college students from the U.S. That turns out to be a problem when researchers want to generalize to human psychology on a really big scale. Jonathan Schultz and colleagues published a study this week that looked at what is strange about weird subjects and what might be the cause of it. Hi, Jonathan.
2: Hi, Sarah.
0: So let's start with what is odd about so-called weird subjects? How do people from these regions of the world perform differently on psychological measures?
2: So weird samples are often quite peculiar when you compare that to other samples around the world. They tend to be more individualistic, less collectivistic, less obedient, They tend to be more impersonal, pro social.
0: And that means that they're happy to make friends with strangers?
2: Exactly. They tend to trust strangers more than if you're from a society with very, from a non weird society. So, on many different uh, dimensions, they fall at the end of a spectrum.
0: Does having that body of people be the predominant participants in psychology experiments cause problems?
2: Of course, if you just base experiments on this particular sample, then you miss out a lot of human variation in behavior. That also then might prohibit that you get a good sense of uh, human behavior and theories which might explain human behavior.
0: In this paper, you take this and turn it around and you ask yourself this challenging question. Why are people from places like this? way they are? Why are they at the end of the spectrum for so many of these different psychological measures? And the suggestion that you came up with is the Roman Catholic Church, not the church of today. This is the medieval Catholic Church of Western Europe. What was happening at that time that might have impacted the psychological traits we've discussed?
2: Exactly. So we traced back these psychological variation to the church Marriage and family policies. I think it's uh, uncontested among anthropologists that kin-based institutions are probably among humans' most fundamental institutions.
0: So you mean how they form relationships with people in their family or not in their family, in their
2: community? Exactly. So these norms include cousin marriage or polygyny, the tracing of descent and co-residency of extended families. If you look around the world, for example, cousin marriage is quite common In some countries, there's cousin marriage rates of up to 50%. And we suspect that this used to be very similar in Europe. And then in late antiquity, the church came in and instituted particular marriage policies and incest prohibitions, which dissolved those kin networks, which forbade cousin marriage. And that changed the kin network structure in Europe. Then once these kin network structures dissolve, The demands of the kin networks change, and ultimately that can impact the psychology of people.
0: What evidence did you find to support this idea?
2: So we assembled a very large data set. First, we assembled a data set on church exposure. We looked at medieval church exposure. Then we assembled a data set on the strength of kin networks, what we call kinship intensity. And lastly, we assembled a data set on psychology to trace the effect of the church on this kinship intensity and from kinship intensity on psychology. And one nice thing is that the church kept very good record of the foundation of bishoprics. And this way we could trace out how the medieval church lumbered over Europe and Christian Europe bit by bit. And this is the variation we exploit in Europe.
0: So did you see a correlation between how long a region had been exposed to the Catholic Church and what kind of kinship networks that people had today?
2: Exactly. So we see that the longer medieval church exposure, both within Europe, but also around the world, the less kinship intensity, the less cousin marriage, for example, these regions experience. And if you Take Europe as an example. Now, cousin marriage is of, often frowned upon. There seems to be a norm against cousin marriage.
0: This was all done with mapping and correlations between where things are happening. But how do you get at causality in this type of situation? I mean, were you able to rule out some of the, the strong alternative explanations for this?
2: Causality is always a challenge, especially if you look at these historical data or historical events a long time ago. What we try to do is we try to address many of the alternative explanations that could be there. And our strategy was to look at this hypothesis at three levels of analysis. So first, we look at cross-country analysis. And of course, uh, some other confounding factors could impact that. But then we also looked at variation within Europe, within European countries. And that allows us to get at many confounding factors. So for example... If you would be worried that national level GDP or institutions are driving our results, we rule out this explanation by just exploiting variation within the country. Or we look at people with different cultural backgrounds who all grew up in the same country. So the institutions okay. and the educations they experienced while growing up, they're actually the same. The only thing that varies is their ancestral history of experiencing different kin networks.
0: So you're kind of eliminating the fact that maybe they're wealthy and educated, you know, that itself could cause a change in kinship structure. You're saying more important is this ancestral, this inheritance of this religious exposure.
2: Exactly. And of course, we also control for in regression analysis, we control for education, we control for income of the people.
0: Does that also rule out the arrow going the other way? So say people who are already predisposed to, you know, changing their kinship networks as the Catholic
2: Church came on the scene? This is a possibility that we cannot totally rule out, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of evidence that this was not the case. For example, a good indicator of a Europe before the church influences these kin networks are kin terms. And if you look at kin terminology in Europe before the church enters, this kin terminology points towards strong kin networks, just as in many other places of the world.
0: Not everyone might be familiar with the history of how Catholicism came to Europe and the rest of the world. Can you give us a basic timeline for the time that you're particularly interested in?
2: So what we are most interested in is when the church started to implement these regulations regarding the marriage. In the fourth century, the church started to implement prohibitions against the marriage of in-laws. Then in the fifth and sixth century, it started to ban marriages between cousins. Often when I talk about this project, people are actually surprised to hear what was going on in the medieval times, that there was this strong obsession about incest there's many instances based on historical documents which show that, for example, if there were natural disasters like the plague, people attributed this to God's worldly punishment of people marrying their cousins. It included second cousins, godparents, included in-laws. I often get the question: of how could they enforce these incest regulations? Right. One way was, of course, they put God's punishment behind that. So if there was a natural disaster like the plague it would be interpreted as God's worldly punishment for incest. They also instituted many other legislations to prohibit incest. For example, weddings had to be public, elders, priests had to investigate whether any relations were known between the couple. So there was a whole apparatus trying to go against incest. And that's other evidence that it seems that the population in Europe at this point of time had a preference for cousin marriage, for Hmm. example.
0: Well, how intense was the exposure to the church in these regions that you're talking about?
2: Well, at this point of time, we're looking at so up to the year 1500. In the area that the church administered their power, everyone was Catholic with some exceptions. Yeah.
0: We're talking a lot about Europe. What about Asia, Africa, North America, South America? How do those areas of the world fit in with the schema that you've come up with here?
2: To a large degree, for example, the U.S. is in a cultural heritage of what happened in Europe. So in our analysis, we control for that by adjusting for population movements, Interestingly, what we show, so we talked a lot about the church and uh, its impact on kin networks, but of course, all around the world, there's variation in kin networks or the strength of kin networks, independent of the European experience. In part of our analysis, we exploit that. So we show that if there's variation for other reasons in the strength of kin networks, that still predicts psychological variation.
0: Was this result a surprise to you?
2: There were two things which surprised me. First, there was the strong medieval obsession with with incest. I didn't know about that before. Mm -hmm. And second, what surprised me is that the statistical results we get, they're actually very strong. Just to give an example, medieval church exposure explains around 60% of the variation in cousin marriages around the world today. Mm -hmm. So these are both quantitatively and also when we control for different confounding factors, quite strong results.
0: What are the next steps to strengthen this um, result and where can you find further support
2: for it? So there are several things that we want to extend this research on. One is we want to get a better idea of when and how the psychology changed. And for this reason, we want to create indicators based on textual analysis of a changing psychology in Europe. So we want to look at literally corpora. And what we looked at here now is psychology. But of course, there might be other outcomes which follow from the dissolution of kin networks. One might be GDP. So we're working on how it relates to wealth and also to institutional outcomes. Very cool.
0: Is this method of using history, anthropology, a lot of quantitative research all mixed together with psychology. Is this a common approach?
2: Oh, I hope it will become more common. Yeah. And studying human behavior, I think studying the history of, of humans is very important mm-hmm. because the history often shapes psychology and to understand them, psychological variation, one needs to understand history. And I think that the social sciences there should start working together historians, economists, psychologists, to get a better understanding of human behavior.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Jonathan.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Jonathan Scholz is a professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University in Virginia. You can find a link to his paper and a related perspective at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Just a reminder that this episode was brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer is helping advance stem cell therapy that repairs heart tissue to keep hearts stronger, longer. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can find the podcast on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg for their suggestions. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.